you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And in both cases, that is not by saying anything or by doing anything, but by being something. Salt affects its environment simply by being what it is. And light affects its environment by being simply what it is, not by saying or doing anything. And if we're going to be salt and light, it's not by a lot of talk or even a lot of action that we're going to be salt and light. It's by being totally different from our environment and so different that we affect it. And it is Luke's gospel that tells us what Jesus meant when he said, you are the salt of the earth. Matthew's gospel doesn't define it. It just says, you are the salt of the earth. And that allows the preacher preaching from Matthew by itself to put any meaning he likes into it. And unfortunately, what we do is we put our own experience of salt into the meaning. We think of salt as either a flavoring or a preservative. And almost every sermon I've heard on you are the salt of the earth talks about flavoring or preservative. That somehow a little sprinkling of Christians makes the atmosphere sweeter or somehow we manage to be the museum of society. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus defines what he means. He says, if the salt loses its saltness, it is no good either for the field or the dunghill. And this tells you what salt was used for in the ancient world. It was scraped up from the shores of the Dead Sea, which as you probably know is 28% salts in solution. Now it's not pure sodium chloride, NaCl, it is a mixture of various salts. There are all kinds of different salts there, and one of the main ones is potassium chloride, potash. If you're a gardener, then you know that every plant needs three kinds of fertilizer. It needs phosphate to develop the roots, it needs nitrates to develop the leaves, and it needs potash to develop the flowers and fruit. And a balanced fertilizer will include all those three. And so the salt that was scraped up from the Dead Sea was widely used as a fertilizer, largely because of the potash in it. There were other things too, magnesium bromide, there are all kinds of major salts in the Dead Sea. There is also sodium chloride, quite a lot. And that, of course, was used in the kitchen. But Jesus is thinking about its use as a fertilizer, he said, on the soil. And the word soil there is exactly the same as the word earth in Matthew. The salt of the earth, the salt of the soil. The fertilizer that you put on the soil to make good things grow. And then he mentioned the dunghill. That was a reference. The word there is a word for not animal manure, but human manure. He's now into the backyard. They simply had a heap of dirt at the bottom of the yard. You went and emptied your bowels at the bottom of the yard, and then by the side of the dirt was a box full of salt from the Dead Sea. And you put a handful of that on your dirt. And that, in fact, was a disinfectant, a very simple disinfectant to stop the spread of things you didn't want to grow. Now, those two put together give you a negative and a positive influence of salt, that it promoted the growth of good things that you wanted to grow, and it inhibited the spread of bad things that you didn't want to grow. It is a vivid picture. And Christians are to be the salt of the soil. Here you've got a very clear vivid picture. Jesus was always using very familiar pictures from ordinary life and 
using them to illustrate profound truth. You are the salt of the soil. You are the people who will stop bad things growing and spreading and who will promote the growth of good things that are wanted there. Now that's a vivid picture. And you are that salt, not by saying anything and not by doing anything, but by being totally different from the environment. And it's as simple as that. In the kitchen, a sprinkling will do. A little salt in the soup and that's enough. But as a fertilizer or a disinfectant, you need a considerable amount before the effect shows. You need handfuls in both cases. A little sprinkling on the soil will not do a thing. And therefore, the very concept of being salt in society demands a certain proportion of that society being Christian, being different, being salt. And the simple fact is, we have not got enough salt. It is as simple as that. And that is why social trends are going the wrong way. And there's no way it can be reversed until there is a sufficient amount of salt to do the trick. In other words, we might be able to win an occasional battle by lobbying and by protesting, but we will lose the war while there is an insufficient amount of salt. And you can apply this in any situation. And while you read the papers and decry what's happening in society, it all shrieks at me, we no longer have enough salt in this country. We once had, but we no longer have. And we can't expect the trends to reverse until we do. Now, how much do we need? Now, this is where I've got some good news for you. That in fact, when in any community or society, there is 5% salt, the social trends reverse for the better. And it's not by anything that 5% are saying or doing but just by being 5%. Until we are producing enough salt to save a society, we're going to continue to work in a situation that's going downhill. And where incidentally it becomes increasingly difficult to be a Christian, because the tide is running hard against us at the moment, and will continue to do so. Well now that's the quantitative aspect of salt. Sprinkling is no good, we need shovelfuls and we haven't got them. The second aspect is the aspect not only of amount, but of distribution, of distribution. Salt is no use in the box or the salt cellar. It has got to be in direct contact with the dirt before it operates. In other words, it operates by presence and not absence. And as long as salt is locked up in a meeting like this, we cannot be salt of the earth this morning. We just can't do it because we're out of contact with the dirt. And therefore distribution, we need first of all 5%, but if that 5% were all locked up in Christian schools and in suburban churches, it would not be salt. It's got to be in among the dirt. It's got to be in direct physical contact if it's going to operate in a factory where there's a 5% Christian presence, the language changes without anybody saying anything. Think of your street or the place where you work. Don't grumble because you're in direct contact with the dirt. That's precisely where salt can act. But it does need a 5% presence. And there is a disturbing attitude among Christians to try and get out of that dirt 
and to get into a Christian situation. But I remember a girl coming to me and saying, isn't it wonderful? She said, I'm the only Christian in the office where I work. And she said, it's so hard. But she said, I've seen an advertisement for a Christian firm and they, they want someone and I'm qualified for the job. And I've been accepted in a Christian firm. She was looking forward to starting the day with prayer and all the rest of it, you know, and going to work in a firm where everybody was Christian. And she saw my face and she said, what's the matter? I said, you just told me that you were the only Christian in the office where you worked. And now they have no contact with Jesus. I want that to be an encouragement to some of you to stay right where you are. Or to put it in Bible terms, to remain in the vocation in which you were called. Because God called you right there. Because you wanted some salt right there. Better to pray that more Christians will join you in that situation. Until you get the 5% than run away and join a Christian outfit. We need salt in national government, local government. We need salt in sport. Distribution of salt is very, very important. And the more we shrink back into Christian ghettos, the less that salt can operate. It can only operate in direct contact with the dirt. The third aspect of salt, and perhaps the most important for us, is the aspect of quality. You see, salt is needed in a certain amount, in any given situation, it is also needed to be in direct physical contact with the situation it's going to influence. But thirdly, it must be salty. And Jesus talked about salt losing its savor. Now, how can sodium chloride lose its salty quality? The answer is it cannot. It is a physical impossibility. And yet, it must have happened in Jesus' day for him to be able to talk about it. He said, if the salt has lost its savor, it's no good for anything, and men throw it in the street, which is where they threw all their rubbish, and it was trodden underfoot, trodden into the dirt. That's what happens to dirt in the Middle East, or to rubbish. Now, how could salt lose its savor? A very simple way. Not by ceasing to be sodium chloride, but by being adulterated with other substances. And a clever salt dealer would scrape up plenty of sand with the salt from the Dead Sea shores. And so a lot of it was not salt at all. That's the only way in which salt can lose its saltness, by having too much other stuff mixed in with it. And so it loses its quality. And any housewife who bought adulterated salt that was half sand would throw it out of the door into the street. And men would walk it back into the dirt from which it came. Now the lesson of that is pretty obvious. Christians will only influence the world if they're different from it. Somebody said of the church, the lifeboat should be in the sea, but when the sea gets in the lifeboat, you're in trouble. And in fact, our real situation is not just that we don't have enough salt, but that the salt we do have is losing its saltness very, very rapidly by being adulterated, by having too much of the humanist, secularist society around us getting right in among Christians because the pressure is enormous to conform. Well now, it therefore can lose its savor. And Jesus said if it does, all it will do will produce contempt in men. They will treat it with disgust. So we have the rather sad spectacle 
of Christians trying to be, to quote the Archbishop of Canterbury, we must be credible to our contemporary generation. Are we called to be credible? Or are we called to be different? That's the real issue. The feeling we've got to be with it, we've got to be one of the boys, we've got to go along with contemporary society or we'll lose them. That is when the salt loses its saltness. And in fact, it's not the way to save society, it's the way to follow it. We should be leading society into a better way, not following their way 30 years after them. And then Jesus said something which I don't think people have taken too seriously. He said, if the salt loses its saltness, there's no way it can be restored. Wherewith shall it be salted again? Now that's important. Once you lose your saltness, you can't get it back again. Once you've lost, when an individual Christian loses their reputation, almost impossible to get it back again. Once salt loses its saltness, wherewith shall it be salted? It's gone for good. Now then, so what is saltness? Well, we've got to go back to the Beatitudes. And when you read those Beatitudes properly, they are the exact opposite of the attitudes of the world in which we have to live and move. To be poor in spirit is to be despised by the world. It means to lack self-confidence to the point where you say, God, if you don't help me, I can't do it. Now the world admires self-confidence, people who are proud in spirit, people who stand up for themselves, people who say, I can do this. The poor in spirit is the exact opposite. It's to say, hey, this is way beyond me. It's the opposite of self-confidence. It's God-confidence, but it's a lack of self-confidence. To be mourning in a world that loves to be happy and jovial and joking, to weep when others laugh, to be meek, the world, I'm afraid, is an aggressive, competitive meritocracy. And meek people are not going to get very far. People who can be pushed around. And then hunger and thirst for righteousness. That means those whose top ambition is to live right. Not to live rich, but to live right. That's their major ambition in life. That kind of person will be salt. Not the person whose ambition it is to be famous or powerful or wealthy. To be merciful in a competitive, cruel, opportunist world. To be merciful, to give others a chance. To be pure in heart not only means to be clean in desires, it means to be unmixed in motives, not to have ulterior motives. To be motivated by simple, pure motives in what you do in your career. And to be peacemakers rather than fighters. Now, Jesus was a realist. And when he outlined the character of salt in this way, he realized, he knew from his own experience as well, that this was the surest way to be persecuted. Which is why he adds an extra beatitude. Blessed are you when you are persecuted, when people say all kinds of bad things about you. And he knew that saying, sticks and stones hurt your bones, but names don't hurt at all, that's one of the most untrue proverbs that's ever been coined. What people say does hurt, hurts deeply. And Jesus said, blessed are you when people say all manner of evil against you. Because if you're going to be salt in your situation, this is certain to happen. People will not believe that you have unmixed motives. They can't believe you're doing it for the right reasons. They'll try and 
Satan was ever the slanderer and the accuser of the brethren. So Jesus said, if you're going to be salt, it's going to be tough. It will not pay in this world. It will in the next. Great is your reward in heaven. Which means you really have to have faith to believe your reward's going to be big. Because you're not going to see it in this world. So you better accept that. It's going to be pretty big in the next. Depends where you want your reward, said Jesus. The choice is contempt. What a choice. Contempt or hatred. You either are good salt, in which case you'll get contempt, sorry, hatred, or you're bad salt and you lose your salt, in which case you get contempt. So I tell you, a Christian loses every way in this world. But if you're real salt, there's a great reward for you in the next. Now, what about light? Light also has its negative and its positive aspects. Its negative aspect is to expose bad ways, to show people up. That's not the way to popularity either. But it also has a positive function in exhibiting the right way, the better way. So its negative aspect is to show up bad ways. The positive aspect is to exhibit a better way. Neither way will be popular again. Now this is the only thing Jesus ever said about himself and his disciples. He said, I am the light of the world, you are the light of the world. He didn't say, I am the salt of the earth. But he did say, I am the light of the world. And he said, you are too. And the occasion on which he said it is fascinating. It is in the context of the woman taken in adultery. A story which you probably have never understood. It is a Jewish story, as the Bible is a Jewish book. Happy are you if you have a Jewish friend to teach you the scripture. Because a Jew understands it. Now you see, this is the situation. They have caught a woman in the very act of adultery. So they brought him to Jesus, knowing that the law of Moses said she must be stoned. And knowing that Jesus, if he said stone her, would go against the Roman law, which forbade execution by Jews. Or if he said, don't stone her, then he was going against the law of Moses. In other words, they trapped him between the law of Rome and the law of Moses. Do you see? It is perfectly true that the law of Moses said she must be stoned. So what did Jesus do? He wrote with his finger in the dust. Now to a Jew, that means one thing. That's a claim to be God. It's a claim to be the one who wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger on the stone. It was Jesus saying, I wrote that law. Now Jews would come to that conclusion. We don't when we hear it read in church because we're not Jewish. A finger writing. I hear preachers say, now what did Jesus write? That's not the point. In a vivid act, he's claiming to be responsible for that law, as he did all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, incidentally. Moses, but I say unto you, this is what I meant when I gave that law. This was my intention behind it. And then Jesus reminded them of another law of Moses, which they'd forgotten. And that is, it's a very simple law. It says, nobody can be a witness in a criminal charge if they have ever committed the same crime. So when Jesus said, he that is without sin, let him throw the first stone, he did not mean you've got to be 100% morally perfect before you can punish anyone. That's how most Gentiles take it. Uh, but you see, that would rule out parents punishing children or police punishing. It would rule out all the law courts because no judge is without sin. But he was quoting the law that said, if you have never committed adultery, you can be a witness in this case. That's when they began to go away. 
one by one, beginning with the oldest. The young ones tried to brazen it out, but even they had to admit that they'd done it. So in fact, the witnesses were dismissed on the basis of the law. Do you follow me? Then he looked up, he said, where are your accusers? Where are the witnesses? They're all gone? Yes, they're all gone. Now then, another point of the law was that there had to be witnesses, two or three. And of course, the case had to be dropped. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. No, just because he was not a witness and there were no other witnesses. Case dismissed. Neither do I condemn you. But he said, don't do it again. I might not be around to defend you. If you get into trouble, do get Jesus as your lawyer. I mean, it is a brilliant thing. He was showing, I know the law better than you do. And I'm going to use the very law of Moses to sort out this situation. Isn't it? It's an amazing story. But when she'd gone, and notice he said, now don't do it again. Because mercy is not offered to us to go back into sin, but to stop doing it. He then said to the crowd that had gathered, I am the light of the world. He who follows me won't walk in darkness, but he'll have the light of life. Now that tells us a profound truth about what light is meant to be. It is not what we say or do, it's what we are. What he's saying is that woman would never have got into that situation if she'd followed me. Because that's a situation of darkness, moral darkness. And the man with her, and all the men who accused it, they were all living in darkness. And if you follow me, you don't get into that kind of a mess. It's really a very simple situation. But he had actually shown them all up, hadn't he? He'd shown them all up, exposed their bad ways, and exhibited the better way. Don't do it again. Don't sin anymore. Now then, the only action that we have to do as light will put ourselves on a lampstand. In other words, there is a responsibility deliberately to put yourself in public view. Now that's a difficult thing for Christians to do because uh, hiding your light is no use to anybody else. You may be shining by yourself, but that's not going to help anyone else. Now then, what is it that we have to let shine? The answer is, Christians are to be seen for having a higher standard of living than everybody else. But not in material ways, in moral ways. A higher moral standard of living is what Jesus meant. When he said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good actions. And by good, he didn't mean doing good. He meant being good. And he then proceeds to spell it out in one sphere after another. And he raised moral standards higher than anybody has ever dared to raise them. There is no ethical teacher in the whole of human history dared to say what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is why many dismiss it as impracticable and idealistic. And they say it's impossible for anyone to live like that. And it is. It is not natural for anyone to live like this. It is supernatural. Which is why Jesus said, let them see how you live and glorify your Father in heaven. They will say, that's not natural. It's not natural. Let me take one example from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus forbade, in fact, he spent more time on this sin than any other in the Sermon on the Mount. He forbade anybody in the kingdom to worry. And this is why you never see a Christian worried. Now, why is it, 
Why is it that whenever I say that, it's treated as a joke? Because Jesus didn't mean it as a joke. We treat it like that because we are laughing it off. But he said, worry is forbidden in my kingdom because it is a libel on my heavenly father. It is saying, your father in heaven cares more about his animals, his pets and his garden than he does about his kids. He clothes the lilies of the field and he looks after the birds of the air. But me, I'm his child, I have to worry. Now do you see what a libel that is? Why did he spend more time on that than anything else in the Sermon on the Mount? Because he knows how natural it is to worry. It is supernatural not to. Do you understand? What an influence it would be if people said, why is it Christians never worry? In a world that everybody's having to worry about the mortgage and everything else, why is it Christians not worried? Boy, that would be an opener for a testimony, wouldn't it? Why are you never worried? Well, I don't need to. Now, Jesus said that will be light in the world. That you of all people, as things get worse, and they're going to get worse, you're at peace. My father's running this world. And I'm his child. And therefore he will see that I always have enough to eat and enough to wear. That's the best welfare state in the world. He will not see that I get everything I want. But everything I need. Right till my dying day. Who wouldn't want to be in a welfare state like that when the government is scrapping every other bit of welfare? You see, Jesus fixed moral standards higher than anybody else. But what he then did was he lifted people to the standard. What the church in our country is doing today is lowering the standards to meet the people. Now that's not going to be light or salt. Do you follow me? And Jesus was quite clear that being light is going to be terribly unpopular because he went on to say, I'm the light of the world, he went on to say, and because I am, you hate me and you want to kill me. And he knew perfectly well that being light is a very costly thing. And standing for what you know to be right and true will be painful and profoundly unpopular. And yet that is what it is to be light in the world of darkness. But I hope I've left you with a sense that salt and light are not what you do or say, but what you are. And they only operate when you're in direct physical contact with a world that's in darkness and dirt. And we need a certain amount if it's going to operate. And we need, above all, a quality of salt and a quality of light that is totally different from the society in which God has placed us. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.